Welcome to What Matters Now. And again, I'm going to hand the mic over to Mishi Harman, the co-creator of Israel Story, the premier English language podcast out of Israel. And Israel Story has been creating these wartime diaries since the war broke out on October 7th or shortly thereafter. And it's a bit of a different way of operating for Israel Story, which usually has a very fine polished product at the end. And so we're hearing what they're calling postcards, little slices of life coming out of Israel. In our previous collaboration about a month ago, we talked about how this came to be. Today, I'd like to speak just very briefly about how you're choosing your subjects. Hi, Amanda. Yeah, um, it's good to be together again, despite the circumstances. And uh, of course, we both wish that we would collaborate under other circumstances, and we will. One day we will. Yeah, (laughs) Um, but here we are. And it's been roughly a month since we last shared some uh, of the uh, Wartime Diaries segments on this podcast. And um, as we get farther and farther from the events of October 7th, the story changes as well. And with that, the process through which we decide which stories we want to tell and we're being very mindful of what voices we haven't heard yet, perhaps groups within society that aren't as vocal or are sidelined, foreign workers or Bedouins. We're also trying to explore more of the political diversity, as we'll hear in some of the segments that we're going to share today, uh, both on the right and on the left. And, um, you know, we live in a time in which there's 10 million stories to tell Everyone has a story of these times, and I think one of the biggest challenges of what we're trying to do is just sort of the humble realization that it is not an exhaustive or definitive record of these times. These are just postcards, as you said, that are chosen by people, and uh, we all have a story to tell. These are some of them. Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org slash wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you.
I'm going to quote your grandmother back to you. And you actually speak about her in the final segment that we'll play today. But my big takeaway from these postcards is what she said to you, that a person is a person is a person, no matter what. So let's begin with Rachel Goldberg and John Poland, whose son Hirsch has become, in a way, the poster child of the hostages in Gaza in a very unfortunate way. He, of course, as we heard, has been injured quite severely. And his mother and father have been tireless warriors on behalf of their son and really on behalf of every hostage. So tell us a little bit about this particular episode. Sure. So listeners of What Matters Now will have heard uh, Jessica Steinberg talk to Rachel Goldberg I think it was on the 12th or 13th day of the war. So seems like a lifetime ago. I'm sure most of all for Rachel herself and her husband, John. And yes, as you said, uh, Rachel and John have been very vocal, very active on behalf of the families of the kidnapped soldiers. John is actually a friend. He had been helping me with Israel's story for quite some time before um, before Hirsch was uh, kidnapped. And our producer, Adina Kopuch, and I went to visit them in their home, which is quite close to our studios here, and came out as almost everyone who hears Rachel or John or both of them comes out completely inspired by their resilience, by the strength of their relationship, and by their determination to do this most basic thing of bringing their son home. Let's listen now. I go out on the porch on Friday nights and I scream the bracha to him with my hands up in the air. And, you know, and then I come in and we have this big, horrible picture that somebody gave us of him with his name spelled wrong. And it's behind our front door. And I kiss his head and I smell his hair on the picture because I know what that smell is of his hair. You know, and I just wait and crave for that time when I can smell his hair. You know, it's they just brought his bag back on Friday. They found his bag seven weeks later uh, that he had taken to the music festival. And when I unpacked it yesterday and I was taking out. Now, normally we're always like, Hirsch, you need to shower. My God, what is that smell? And I was taking out his clothes and I was finding the armpits and inhaling it like, you know, like it was like the most wonderful thing I could ever smell, you know. But John... I, I, this morning I went for the first time, it's day 51, I went to the above ground bomb shelter where Hirsch came under attack, lost his arm and was then taken captive. And as I was there, I was thinking, it's so close. It's like couple of kilometers from here, a mile and a half. Let's just go right now. Like my friend has a four by four. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. We thought better of that, but it's absolutely crossed my mind. I mean, he is so close. Many of you have probably heard or read about Rachel Goldberg and John Polin, the parents of 23-year-old Hirsch Goldberg Polin, who was kidnapped from the Nova Party. In many ways, they've emerged as the face of the hostage families. 
They've met with Biden and the Pope. They were on the cover of Time magazine. Rachel has spoken at the UN and at the March for Israel rally in Washington, D.C. And in all those places, as well as in countless other interviews, speeches, and meetings, they've told the heartbreaking tale of the two text messages Hirsch sent on the morning of October 7th. One saying, I love you, and the other, I'm sorry. He wrote those messages from within a shelter, where he was hiding with 28 other partygoers. 18 of them were killed, and Hirsch, whose left arm was blown off, was badly wounded. Shortly thereafter, Hirsch and three others from the shelter were loaded onto Hamas pickup trucks and taken into Gaza. It has now been 55 days. Earlier this week, Adina Karpuch and I sat in Hirsch's room and talked to his parents. I'm Rachel. I'm Hirsch Goldberg, Poland's mom. I'm John. I'm Hirsch's dad and Rachel's husband. I'm, and I'm John's wife. <laughs> Who are you? <laughs> and how would you have introduced yourselves on October 6th? I would have said I'm Rachel. Uh, yeah, I guess I would have said I'm John. I'm proud to be father of Hirsch, Libby, and Orly, and Rachel's husband, life partner, but I never used it as part of my identity or never introduced myself with that identity, but I do find it more relevant, more uh, present now than before. What have you discovered about each other during this, uh, this time? I really have discovered, even on the first night, we went into our room crying, saying, we think he's dead. I remember saying, like, it's going to be horrible for a long time, and then we're going to be okay. One day we're going to be okay again. We're not going to, it's not going to be the rest of our lives. And we were crying and we were holding each other saying, it's going to, one day we'll be okay again. And that's like, this is the moment. Like, I cannot imagine there is not one other person on the planet who I could go through this with, not one. And you have to be made of steel, a couple made of steel, to get through it. And I'm very thankful. I dive in every morning. I pray every morning. The first thing that I thank God for is for John. And there's no way on earth, no way on earth that... I could do this without exactly him. Not a strong partner, great partner. Him. Him partner. And I'm not even sure that I learned anything new about Rachel. I do feel like I've shared her with the world. I walk down the street now and people stop me. And sometimes they say, you're Hirsch's dad, which is great. I'll take that. And sometimes they say, you're Rachel's husband, which is also great. And I'll take that. But the number of people who come up to me now and say, your wife is amazing. And I just find myself saying, I know, I know. I've known that for a long time. But now she's very public, and uh, a lot of other people also know that. Look, I think to be known for something horrible is horrible. So that makes me sad, because either I'd like to be anonymous, or it would be nice to be known for something wonderful, not something that's everybody's worst nightmare. 
you're now living a reality that you never imagined and never wanted to live and you've been thrust into this role that I don't think ever in a million years would have been one that you thought would have been part of your life and what's it feel like to be in that role the role of being the family of a hostage um that's like an indescribable uh place to be we keep trying to describe it in different ways of you know sometimes i'll say it's like trying to talk to someone who was born blind and has never had vision and trying to explain to them what purple is you know but even that it's not pain it's something else it is pain but i mean pain is the shot pain is the you know surface there's such a deep existential existence that's mostly what's challenging is that it's an existence it's not um it was explained to us that trauma is something that comes out of nowhere and it's a shock and it's earth-shattering and then you have to figure out like how do i stand up and like how do i take my first step forward this is very different than that because it hasn't hit us and moved on we it is a slow motion stretched out agonizing continual way of being what do your days look like now filled with action and we made the decision by saturday afternoon october 7th that we weren't going to wait around for the israeli government or the u.s government or anybody else to take action on our behalf we said we're taking matters into our own hands we set up a situation room and sometimes there are four people here sometimes there are 14 people here it depends on the day and the time of day but we are constantly in action mode, whether it be reaching out to U.S. officials, reaching out to Israeli officials, finding foreign government officials that may be relevant players here, connecting with other hostage families to compare parts of the, the journey. We basically have said we need to tell the story, keep it front and center for the world, and we need to do everything we can to reach out to every influential person that we can that might ultimately be the person who could lead to the release of Hirsch. He's going to hate it. All of his friends always say he is going to hate <laughs> that he's everywhere, that you guys are everywhere, that, you know, that you've described him on all of these, uh, you know, in all these articles and all these newscasts and all these things. He, we, we joke about it all the time. We say, like, first of all, God willing, I would love to deal with him hating it. Do you know what I mean? Like, he, he should come home healthy, soon, alive one arm down we'll deal with that trauma we'll deal with it but honestly my normal way of being when people say there's fight flight or freeze i'm a freezer usually but i've never been in this situation before and this is just primal what we've been doing it's not me this is so not me to go and not be scared look i'll speak in public it's not that i'm not shy but I do get nervous. I've taught for years and we joke about it because I'll be going to teach, you know, a group of 16 year olds. Like they're not exactly like an intimidating bunch. And I'll be nervous and shaking before and it's a whole big thing. That's gone. 
I don't care who I talk to now. Like, the scariest thing on planet Earth has happened. So I don't care getting up in front of 300,000 people in D.C. My voice didn't shake. I don't care. I don't care getting up in front of the U.N., up in front of the Pope. I don't care. And I've never been that type of person. In fact, we used to joke because the Polans... They can't ever sit still. They always have to be doing something. You go on a vacation. There's no, like, hanging out by the pool with the Poland family. You know, the Polans are doers. They're like, what are we doing next? Ba-ba, ba-boom. I am not like that. I am not wired like that. My family is not like that. And I would even say, I feel like people who do that are running from something. It's like they don't want a moment of silence because they don't want to do introspection or they don't want to, like sort of contemplate their lives so they want to always be moving then they never have to think and now I really appreciate that way of being we have to be doing something to help save Hirsch's life and hopefully the other hostages and it also makes it so there isn't time for that introspection which at this moment would be soul shattering it would be unbearable and excruciating I actually only feel comfortable physically when I don't feel comfortable like, I don't want to feel good because I know he doesn't feel good. So the second or third week, someone said, like, I'm having someone come. They're going to give you a massage. It will just be 20 minutes. You can, like, have your clothes on. You can just do whatever. It was so, it was excruciating for me. I can't do that now. I cannot do that now. I can't even taste good food now. Like, I eat food in order to have eaten. But when I feel hungry, that's the only time I feel okay. Because I feel, I don't know if it's guilty. I don't know what it is. It does not feel appropriate to feel okay right now. It does not feel right. And so when I'm uncomfortable, when I'm going to sleep and my stomach's growling, I feel good. We don't exercise. We don't take any time of our own. We just don't. I keep saying next week, next week, next week. And now we're seven plus weeks in and it hasn't happened. Maybe next week. Have any specific memories of Hirsch or stories about him been in your mind a lot during this time? I mean, when I think about stories about Hirsch, the stories that I think about and the traits that I think about him are seen through the lens of how is that trait helping him navigate? So, for example, when Hirsch was 12, he came to us and said, I have something really important to discuss with you guys. So we were like, okay, let's sit and have a conversation. And he says to us, I know I'm young and you think that I'm not ready, but I'm really ready to move out and get my own apartment. (laughs) And we, we, we stopped ourselves from laughing because we had to take it seriously. And we explained to him that he actually probably wasn't ready. But he's had this independence from the time he was literally like two years old. And I keep saying that sense of, of strength and independence and independent thinking is a really strong attribute for what he's going through right now. He's going to figure out a way to kind of keep pushing through this. I also am thinking that kind of thing. But when you ask the question of, you know, you've had this whole, you have this whole life of stories that you can be thinking of and drawing on. That I don't allow myself to go to. Never. Because I think that it would break me. 
and I don't go there. To memories, to, to stories? Nope. Nope. I found um, one piece of paper that I made for him. He's obsessed, or you, as a child, he was obsessed with geography. And he would say to me, like, make me a test, make me a quiz, make me whatever. And I found one of those quizzes, and it's on my nightstand. And that's the only thing that I've allowed myself to, like, cheat and and go there. Because the really yummy luxury of opening, you know, like a photo album or thinking about because I have journals that I kept when the kids were little and reading you know vignettes I think that it would break me right now so I don't I don't do that so to be constantly busy and constantly running constantly it's actually better the only thing that's sad is that when we do finally get into bed at night and take our pills that our doctor has given us to like knock us out because otherwise we couldn't sleep. We always say to each other, well, I guess we failed because he's not home, they're not home. So like we worked our asses off and you fall into bed exhausted and you know that you failed. It's the ultimate myth of Sisyphus. We wake up every morning and we're like, okay, we're back to square one. Like it doesn't matter what we did for 51 days, we failed because here we are. When you close your eyes and imagine Hirsch just right now, what what do you feel and what do you see? I try a little bit not to think about it. And sometimes I, I want to think like, oh, he's in a tunnel playing soccer with some of the little kids. You know, and it's a shame that he used to love to be the goalie. Now he has one arm, like maybe it's harder. Um, you know, like when I'm in a good place like that, I want to picture that. And I don't want to picture any of the bad that could possibly be happening because it's not helpful for me. It doesn't help me do anything but suffer more. So I, I, I try not to really picture it and I try to, you know, just hope and pray that he's with other people, other hostages, or other nice Gazan people because I really feel that there are good Gazan civilians who are also going through absolute hell right now. And I am also convinced that there are many who know Hirsch or have seen Hirsch or know where he is. And I understand why they can't say anything. I often, when I was young, would say to myself, what would I have done in World War II? Would I have hid Anne Frank? And, you know, I want to believe that, yeah, I would have, I would have been. And the truth is, I probably would have been too scared. So I don't blame the people who are too scared who are there, but I'm hoping that they're being kind to him. Whoever he's with somehow is being kind to him. Um, Do you ever have the fantasy of just like getting into the car and since it's not that far away, just going to to Gaza or or going to pick up Hirsch? Yes, I have that fantasy all the time. We actually have talked and, about doing that. Totally. That and, we and were going to go to the border and we were going to be like, we are here, bring him out, or and, and like threatening, right? Because well, like, I'm sure Hamas would take that. Like I, I was going to say, like, I have had a great life. We're going to trade now, okay? He's coming out, I'm going in, enough, right? Like as if they'd be like, oh, okay, somebody bring out Hirsch, you know? But <laughs> <laughs> when we were going to the UN... 
I was very apprehensive because I didn't want to leave because I thought at least I know that I'm like an hour and a half from him now, probably less. Um, and I was really panicked to leave here and to be so far away from him. Well, when we when we travel now, we fly LL and on a flight just now, we got on, we talked to the captain and we said, if they announce that they're bringing out Hirsch and the other hostages while we're in the middle of the flight, and he didn't even let us finish the sentence. He said, we're going to turn the plane around and go back home. And we were like, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know, Hirsch is my first child. So he is the person who changed my being in the world. I was a person and he made me mother. So the girls, I'm also their mother, but I was mother before they showed up. He changed who I am in the universe, and he's not here. So we're talking um, here in Harsha's room on what will be the third day in which hostages are being released, thankfully. What's going through your mind as you're seeing this? Well, we're thrilled. It's such a feeling of relief and happiness. And we just pray that somehow, you know, the the stamina keeps going and the thread keeps holding and that Hirsch's turn will come really soon. We've spent 51 days grasping anywhere for hope. So this is a great first step. In a world where you're looking for hope anywhere, seeing a dozen or more people released day after day is really, really encouraging. Well, Rachel, John, thank you so much. And of course, we're with you in every way, in every prayer uh, for Hirsch's return and everyone's return and for quiet days to resume for all of us who live amen. here. Amen, amen. amen. Thank yeah. You, thank you. Mishi, thank you for bringing that. And as you said, there are 10 million stories to be told. And even from the same person, we can learn many different shades. You're listening to this podcast. So I know you care about the war in Israel right now. And you've been reading the headlines. Massacre in Gaza. Genocide perpetrated by Hamas. No, by Israel. But if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know one thing. This stuff seems complicated. And honestly, no one can really just pick a side or decide an opinion without really learning, without really knowing what you're talking about. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History, now in its sixth season. They have episodes with topics ranging from what is Hamas anyway, to whether Israel should ransom captured soldiers, and the history of Israel and its disengagement from Gaza in 2005. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So, educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to your podcasts. The next episode we're going to listen to, I found really fascinating because I think many, many Israelis look to the disengagement 18 years ago as perhaps a mistake, 
I don't know. We're we're revisiting the history. I remember being pregnant with my now 18-year-old twins who are about to join the army. <laughs> wow. And I wonder if we hadn't pulled out, would we still need them to join the army? And the woman you speak with, I'm sure, <laughs> would be perhaps in that camp. So tell us a little bit about Datya Yitzhaki. Yeah, so as you said, Amanda, correctly, I think that the attacks coming out of Gaza have, for many people, painted the disengagement in, in new colors. And for many people, have reinforced something that they've been saying for the last 18 years. I uh, was present at the disengagement. I moved that summer to Gaza to cover it. And I've heard in the 18 years since many, many people talk about this open wound of the disengagement. We've aired several Israel Story episodes about this topic. And it was important for us to share with our listeners that perspective of people who lived in Gaza for many years, who warned against leaving Gaza, who said again and again that uh, in the power vacuum that would come with our withdrawal, extremists would thrive. And I think that that too is one of the voices that we're hearing. And um, our producers, Mitch Ginsburg and Adina Karpuch, went to visit this woman, Datya Itzhaki, who is one of the very vocal advocates of returning to Gaza today in the wake of the attacks and presents a perspective that I think uh, for me and perhaps for many other listeners is not one that we hear often. Let's hear that now. I said, if my leaving my home will even save one life, of, of a Jew, I'll go, but it won't. And, and we said it time after time, and unfortunately, nobody were listening. We were sure the situation in Gaza will be a lot worse, and we said it all along the time. If you're going out, we'll have here Hamastan. <sighs> in the summer of 2005, the government of Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza. The roughly 8,000 residents of the 21 Jewish settlements within the Gaza Strip were forced to leave their homes and their communities. Communities which, for decades, the government had actually encouraged and incentivized them to inhabit. The evacuation, or disengagement, or expulsion, all depends on your political point of view, brought the country to the brink of a civil war. This was especially palpable in the tense relations between the residents of Gush Katif, as the main block of Gaza settlements was known, and their neighbors from the other side of the fence, the largely left-leaning residents of the kibbutzim of Otef Aza, all the same kibbutzim that, 18 years later, suffered most in the Hamas attack of October 7th. Now, former residents of the Gaza settlements many of whom never stopped dreaming of returning to the sand dunes of the Strip, feel at least partially vindicated. Had their communities not been dismantled back in 2005, they claim, the army would have still been in Gaza, and none of this calamity would have happened. One such voice is that of 63-year-old Datya Yitzhaki, who used to live in the Gushkatif settlement of Kfar Yam. 
Our producers Adina Karpuch and Mitch Ginsburg went to visit her in her still-temporary trailer home on the beach just south of Atlit. You'll also hear Datya's husband Aryeh chiming in from time to time. Okay, here's Datya. Can you explain to us a little bit about where we are? So, um, the way they evacuated people from Gaza, it was in, in communities. So, we joined a community here. We're the last group uh, of Gush Katif that still has a problem. We didn't build our permanent housing. So, here, there's a camp of uh, 16 families that live here already 12 years. About, what, 150 kilometers north along the same coast. (laughs) Same ocean, the same Arabs. Should we go inside? Can you start by introducing yourself? Okay, my name is Datia Yitzchaki, born in Kfar Harwe, and I got to Gush Katif in 1984. Kfaryam, it was houses on the beach that already existed. In the beginning, it was two, basically, families. And uh, we didn't have electricity. We had a generator. And they would uh, basically put on the generator uh, for the news. So between 8 and 9 in the evening, we had electricity. <laughs> um, we had water. Sometimes not. Uh, it was... Uh, what they call it, Yashvut Bodedim. Uh, I don't know. Lo- uh, lonely. Uh, not so lonely, but Bodedim. No, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I came there, I was single. And, you know, they told me, What are you coming to Gush Katif here? It's sand and sand and married sand. You'll never find anybody here in Gush Katif. And I was the spokesperson of the municipality. And I met my husband, <laughs> he's a tour guide. Uh, we met on the stairs of the municipality. I came down and he came up. <laughs> really, we felt completely free. Uh, grocery, we did in Khan Yunis. I learned driving in Rafiach, my, my driving... Instructor. Yeah, it was from Rafiach. That's why I drive today like that. I have an excuse. <laughs> so it was a beautiful area, beautiful beaches, you know. A swimming pool and people came they came for recreation to the Gaza region you know, my family came to me when they wanted to have a nice uh, weekend or something like that all of it changed uh, when the Intifada started but still you know everybody saw it as their home it wasn't a thing that okay you know it's dangerous we, we get up and we go it's your home so you're fighting it in the second intifada, there were six thousand uh, bombs that fell on on uh, our communities. Uh, Neved Kalim, uh, Netzer Khazani was hit, Atzmona was hit. Uh, six thousand, and at the time also we didn't know how to deal with it. There was no uh, uh, mamad or shelter or thing like that, you know. So in Neved Kalim, that's bordered with Khan Yunis, Really, the, the, the line of Khan Yunis is, is the fence of Neved Kalim. They got all the bombs on them. And like women will tell me that uh, they have to decide at night what child to put underneath the steps because that's the most safe. Uh, so every night they put another ch- child there. It was very hard. But again, 
you know, it was our home. Nobody thought of leaving. So there are a lot of miracles. We lived from miracle to miracle. And there was never a moment where you said, is this worth it? No. We felt that we are Zionists. And we're, you know, it's like today, soldiers are fighting Gaza and they don't ask, is it worth it? We felt like that. Yeah, it's worth it, it's your home. Arik Sharon, he was living very close. You know, the, the ranch, Chavat Shikmim, is near Sderot. Many times, problems in Itzarim, you know, security, things like that. The first one to be there was Arik Sharon, to come and help the people, really. And then he would go and said, if Gush Katif wouldn't have been here, we would have to establish it for the security of the State of Israel. Because the only way to control what's happening in the Gaza region and from the border of Egypt is the civilians uh, being here in Gush Katif, Arik Sharon. I saw it in my eyes dozens of times. So we were there because Arik Sharon said it's very important to be there. And then the same power that he had to help and to build, he had to destroy it. The Israeli parliament approved the disengagement plan. Israel had no intentions of staying in Gaza and was proceeding with a full withdrawal. The disengagement has begun. Thousands of IDF troops and police officers entered Gaza settlements this morning to hand out eviction notices to local residents. Prime Minister Ariel Sharon's unilateral plan of retreating from the Gaza Strip was in contrary to his statements before the elections. Gaza Strip settlers refuse to accept that they will be evacuated. They also refuse negotiating with the Israeli government. It was a very, very bad feeling. It was betrayal because you don't believe that your army is, is trying to, I don't know, conquer your own house. And you're evacuating citizens that were settled here by the government. You're going against the values of, of settlement of the land. You're going against values of security. It's interesting. It seems like your ideology and your conviction never changed. It's just that the public perception of it really changed. Yeah, suddenly we weren't already Zionists. We were an obstacle for peace. <sighs> At the last day, um, we stood on the, on the roof and we had the children up on the, on the roof and basically the army of Israel came to us on the land, on the sea, and in the air for one house. <laughs> and we still tried to convince them that what they're doing is a mistake. 
and it's a crime against humanity because it's it's you know they're going and uprooting people from their legal house and uh, in the end of the day the army of Israel succeeded so they took us on the bus and uh, that was also something very very hard because uh, first of all we went out we went through the Mawasi our Arab neighbors that were cheering that Israeli army is evacuating Jews and then we went out of the Gaza region and our neighbors from the kibbutzim were standing there and cheering because they're taking us out of the Gaza region they were like standing on the street on the side just cheering yeah Can you describe for us like some of your feelings on October 7th having had you know sort of a tense relationship with them? I think uh, first of all it was a shock like everybody else. Listen, it was a tense with these kibbutzim and for more than a year they were standing every Friday uh, in the junction with signs. saying uh, come back home leave Gaza and we have uh, we have a video with me arguing with one of them and this guy is now in Aza kidnapped mm-hmm. so we try to explain to them we're now you know your bumper we're there in order to make sure that you were be safe once we're out you have a big problem and and You know, they said, you're an obstacle to peace. We want peace with the Gaza region. We know them, you don't. I know them. I lived there 21 years. Believe me, I know them. I know the good, I know the bad. And they paid the price. I feel very big sorrow, very big pain, double pain, because we knew how it could have been prevented. We said it will happen. And because of that, it, it hurt so much. We said Hamastan. But the amount, the, the, the huge tragedy, the, nobody could, could think about it before. It, it's a disaster, really. So what does Gaza 2025 look like in your eyes? So first of all, clean Gaza from terror. Second of all, uh, take all the people out, the Arabs out of Gaza region and resettle them. Put them in a... place of their own, Sinai is open, there's a lot of place there, take all the money of the world, and I don't care, you know, build them the most beautiful houses there is. And third, build back the, the communities that are supposed to be there of Jews. You would be willing to move uh, if, the, if the army gave, and the government gave you the green light in, in a month, in 30 days, they said you can go back to no electricity on the beach, would you be up for it? Arik. Yes, for sure. You know, home is a lot more than, than an apartment. Home is a place that gives you the, the feeling of security, of, of something else. And that only was in Kfar Yam. If the mission is finished, I take... סירה שיש לי, ואני מפליג עם דתיה בליווי של חיל הים לכפר ים. נוחת על כפר ים. 
as soon as the operation is over, you're saying you're gonna board? load your children and your wife Tatya up onto it and sail south onto your boat all the way to the doorstep of your old home. Can, can, can. As you said, she is one of the proponents of the return to Gush Katif. And for any listeners who are interested, we have a very deep, in-depth look at this movement that we recently published on the Times of Israel website. And Amanda, this may be a moment to share with listeners. Perhaps I can be boastful for you um, <laughs> that the Times of Israel has, since the start of the war, not only been covering Israel from every possible angle and all that's going on here, but has uh, really been, for many, many millions of people around the world, the main way to understand what's happening. And in fact, I read, and I don't know if Times of Israel readers or listeners are aware of this, but in fact, the Times of Israel saw the largest increase in uh, readership of all news outfits in the world since the start of the war, which is really quite incredible. Um, and uh, to you and to all of the team at the Times of Israel for working so hard throughout this time to try to bring the kind of honest and uh, clear-voiced journalism that, that you do. Mishi, I listeners can't hear that I'm blushing, but uh, I am, so thank you very much. Let's turn to our final episode where your grandmother's quote comes from, that a person is a person is a person. And I think it's going to be difficult for some listeners to hear this episode because of the intense pain that all of us here in Israel and many Jews and non-Jews feel around the world about the Hamas atrocities. But what is so important to me in our bringing this forward, this episode, is that, of course... Not everyone in Gaza is Hamas. People are suffering there. People are innocent there. And so telling the story of, I would argue, a victim of Hamas in Gaza, one could argue that, is so important. And you bring it so sensitively. So tell us about Sahar Vardi. Of course. First of all, thank you, Amanda. Um, I'll say that this is the most polarizing episode that we released in the series. Um, it is one that many listeners were furious about, and it is also one that many listeners thanked us more than any other episode that we released and sent in money to Israel Story. And the reason that it is so polarizing is because we live in this binary reality now in which for many people acknowledging and recognizing suffering and pain on the other side is a statement about what we think of our own pain and this came after 20 odd wartime diaries that were all from a pretty mainstream israeli jewish perspective and you know it's interesting because I think that actually listeners and readers abroad perhaps have a better perspective on what's going on here than we do. Um, the Israeli media is in many ways telling us one side of this story. And I think that when we look back at these times in the future, one of the clearest things is going to be 
the way that the media in Israel told this story, and it's pretty understandable and, and natural that we tell the story through our perspective. But of course, as we all know, there um, are thousands and thousands of civilians being killed in Gaza. And of course, it's complicated. And of course, as you say, this is tied in with the Hamas's cynical use of the civilian population in Gaza. And yet there are thousands and thousands of civilians, women and children and people who have nothing to do with the Hamas who are getting killed. And, you know, my own feeling as a person, not as the host of Israel story, is that pain is pain is pain, and that the pain of seeing your children executed in your living room in Kibbutz Beri is no less or no more than the pain of seeing your children being blown up by a uh, missile shot by an Israeli uh, uh, airplane. And it was important for us, and also frightening for us, to bring this perspective by Saar Vardi, who tells the story of a close friend of hers who was a uh, peace activist living in Gaza. And um, ultimately, I'm very glad that we were able to share this perspective because this too is part of the story. Listeners, please stick around till the end. The people who came in to Israel on October 7th, what they saw in front of them was an enemy that is not individuals, that are not humans, you know, it's it's, a, it's horrific. And then our response as a society is saying, we're not going to see them as human. Like, we've tried this so many times. And it's failed every single time. And we know it's going to fail this time. And nobody has a plan. And yet, that's where we're at. Hey, listeners. It's Mishi. One of the people who influenced me most in life was my grandmother, my safta, Zina. She lived across the street from us and reached the ripe old age of 99. So in a very real way, she was always there and shaped the person I am today. My grandparents met in the early 30s, in England, at a formal intercollegiate debate. On one side of that debate was my grandfather, Abe, who was the head of the Zionist Student Union at Oxford. And on the other was my grandmother, who was the head of the non-Zionist student union at the London School of Economics. She was a non-Zionist not because she had any particular beef with the idea of a Jewish homeland, but because, like many progressives in England at the time, she was an internationalist and didn't really believe in the concept of nation-states. I'm not sure who technically won that particular exchange of ideas, but suffice to say that several years later, my Safta followed my Saba to Jerusalem and spent her entire life representing and working in the service of the Jewish state. Many, many years after that debate, in the summer of 2006, my Safta and I were watching TV together in her home in Jerusalem. It was the middle of the Second Lebanon War, and the news was simply awful. Casualties, destruction hopelessness. And then my Safta looked at me and said something I haven't forgotten ever since. Look what a strange world we live in, she said. There are beautiful hills north of here that have vegetation and trees and wildlife. And we humans have drawn a line in the middle of those hills. And we call one side of the line Israel and the other Lebanon. 
And now people from one side are launching rockets at people on the other, who in response are bombing and shooting and advancing. And what's the guy on TV saying, really? He's telling us that when Moti Cohen from one side of the line is hurt, when his life is turned upside down, we have to be very sad and mourn, because he's one of our own. And it's not that when the same thing happens to Ahmed Suleiman from the other side, we need to rejoice. But we can care a bit less. My grandma then sighed and, with the authority and experience of a woman in her mid-90s, said, But I'm equally saddened for both Moti and Ahmed. Because, well, a person is a person is a person, no matter what. That lesson became the basis of Israel's story, a project that my friends and I created in order to share human interest stories of our countrymen and women. For 13 years we've been exploring the humanity of different people and trying to create empathy towards those who have different beliefs or worldviews or circumstances. Israel's at war now, a brutal war we didn't want and didn't initiate. And here at Israel Story, we immediately stopped everything we were doing and began releasing wartime diaries, which is something completely new for us. Not exactly stories, but rather quick conversations, or postcards really, that try to capture slivers of life right now. Thus far, we've released 20 diaries that shine a light on the pain and resilience that is everywhere. We've profiled families of hostages and the fallen. We've heard from survivors of the October 7th carnage and from civil society leaders who have initiated incredibly inspiring projects. We've asked what it's like to be a mom at home with four kids and no kindergarten or what it's like to volunteer for reserve duty at the age of 50. We've spoken to farmers and chefs and rock stars, to rabbis and educators and programmers, to a Holocaust survivor, and to real-world heroes. But one thing that's common to almost all those we've heard from is that they represent mainstream Jewish-Israeli perspectives. And that's not a coincidence. Our name is Israel's story, and our team is made up primarily of Israeli Jews. I am an Israeli Jew. I was born here, and grew up here, and have lived here my whole life. I served in the army, and have, together with the rest of the team, devoted my professional life to telling Israel's story, at least in the way that we understand it. So we're not neutral observers. We're a side to this war. But I also keep in mind my grandmother's lesson, which is the motto of our show, that a person is a person is a person, no matter what. And that pain is pain is pain, no matter if it's inflicted in Be'eri or in Chanyunis. Empathy is the core of what we do here at Israel Story. And even now, maybe especially now, empathy is crucial because everyone is suffering. I know a lot of people don't have the desire or the capacity at this terrible moment of anguish to make space for anyone else's pain. And that makes sense to me. It's understandable. Now is definitely not the time for any kind of judgment. 
But after thinking about it very carefully, after many heated conversations and debates, our team has decided that in order to remain true to our mission, it's also important to share stories from the other side, to complicate matters, and humanize, and insert some nuance into what can often feel like a black and white, us versus them, reality. This is not a statement about equivalency or about hierarchy of pain. We're not here to make political statements or point fingers. We're just doing what we believe is right, telling the stories we're hearing among and around us. Today we'll hear from Sahar Vaudi, a Jewish-Israeli peace activist who lost a dear friend, Khalil Abu Yahya, in Gaza. Adina Karpuch edited this episode. Um, my name is Sahar Vardi. I'm a Jewish-Israeli activist from Jerusalem. I'm 33. I spend quite a lot of time in Palestinian villages, uh, mostly doing what we call protective presence work, so trying to be with Palestinians in areas where there's a lot of settler violence or military violence. Can you describe your experience um, of October 7th? Where were you? What, what your emotions were? I was sleeping when everything started in Jerusalem. And my flatmate woke me up in the first alarm and told me there's an alarm. And I looked at her like, what are you talking about? Um, and we went down to the uh, shelter in, in the building. Um, there was quite a few alarms in Jerusalem that morning. So the whole morning was kind of going up and down, uh, trying to figure out when, when do you take a shower between the, uh, between the alarms. I was obviously in my pajamas for the first couple times that I went down. And uh, I think this is true for most activists. Uh, our, our pajamas are activist t-shirts. <laughs> so those are, those are the ones you don't walk around with every day, but they always have a slogan on them. And going into a shelter where, you know, a lot of the neighbors obviously are people who are like with their phones waiting to be called up um, for the military, uh, knowing they'll probably be called up the same day. And, and like everyone, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a bizarre, bizarre reality. After, you know, I check that everyone I know is at least safe um, here. I checked in with Palestinian friends and they were still safe, you know, first day or two. I was starting to understand what that's going to mean for them. And it was very clear that like the 1400 of those first day and that tragedy is just the beginning of the tragedy that's going to happen here. And what does that mean for, for the friends that I have in Gaza as well? How do you have friends from Gaza? So different people f in different ways, but I, I worked for an American Quaker organization for about 10 years that has an office in Gaza. Um, and so a lot of these people have been my colleagues for, you know, some for a decade. Can you tell me about your friend Khalil? So Khalil, I, I really met through the protests of uh, the March of Return. And a lot of the people kind of leading those protests and, and involved in them came from the kind of very strong, nonviolent ethos in, within Gaza. So Khalil was 27, a literature student, comparative literature, and uh, had two daughters. He was married. Um, he was here hospitalized. Uh, he had cancer. So he was hospitalized in Jerusalem. And... He was O minus, so am I. So I was donating my blood to him while he was unconscious. That was the closest we physically got. 
Um, and more recently was trying to study abroad. So we were talking a lot about it. I just came back from the UK from studying there. So we were talking a lot about kind of scholarships and trying to help him figure out where he can apply. He was applying for his PhD and, you know, just that kind of stuff very daily. You know, those people that you speak to and you come out, it doesn't matter what you talked about, you just come out with a smile from the conversation because there's something about them that's a bit contagious. <laughs> he was one of those people. Our last interaction before the war was September 27th, um, and it's kind of, it's a bit boring, uh, but, you know, he was sending me a CV because we were talking about the scholarships, uh, and I was sending him, like, if, what the grading system is, uh, in if it's by the Egyptian one, because I think that's what there is in Gaza, and kind of sending him a tool of how to convert it, and I was like, great. 2.1 as a minimum is great. That's the British system. Um, and gives me a good enough indication to send you some thoughts. Um, and then he continues, say it says, uh, by the way, we can search for cheap universities in the UK or US if we don't find scholarships. Or I can study a PhD from here online um, so that it's cheaper. I'm just telling you this in case this is helpful for whatever you're sending me. And if it's not helpful, just ignore this message. <laughs> you know, just a casual conversation and then the war began and when was your next interaction on october 11th i wrote him how are you holding up in this madness and it's it's kind of texts that you send that are asking are you still alive like you don't you don't ask that um but that's what you do and his first response is the israeli army called us to evacuate and go to el ramal neighborhood we evacuated to another place not the one that the israeli army told us to go after two hours, the Israeli army wiped the Ramal neighborhood, and tens of people and families were brutally killed. Update, our house, where I and my family live, has been totally destroyed by American-made F-16s. Uh, it is a place of memories with my late father. I'm extremely sad and feel pain deep inside my heart. Tears don't stop dropping off my eyes. I can feel my heart burning. I can feel my soul being suffocated by this. I want to scream wake the world up. Now if I survive I'll be homeless, but I'm sure that the hearts of my beloved friends will always be a shelter that can never be destroyed. It is important for me to say that this will never affect my enthusiasm for a better world for all people without discrimination. I don't want this to happen to anyone. Um, and we keep texting a bit and I tell him kind of like, I, I wish I had more to say or do. And just tells me, it's enough of me that you asked about me. And just, you know, this won't affect my enthusiasm for a PhD. So we can continue on developing that. Um, or to meet you in person, if I survive. We, yeah, I just told him, let's get through this and make it happen. He said, inshallah, we will. And then, yeah, there's the day where he tells me, oh, I'm here now. If you want, we can talk. I'm available. And then I try him and... He doesn't answer, and then he tries me. He doesn't answer. Say, I'm sorry, I was offline. Glad you're okay. He says, it's fine, we can talk later. Um, writes, I miss you, my dear friend. And the last one is after a few of his cousins were killed on October 23rd. What did he say? I feel terribly melancholic for this, but also more determined to fight for freedom, justice, and equality for all for all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, color, or religion. And the end, like a message after that, he writes, my family members who lost their lives in the Israeli bombing will always be the source of power to go on in this long way to struggle, and we won't give up. 
Um, and then, yeah, the last text that I have from him, um, I tell him, so like, sorry to hear about your family members, more and more people and names and stories just adding to a list of pain that continues to grow. So he writes me, hence our role as human rights activists and freedom fighters. <laughs> and that was October 27th, and by October 30th, uh, he was dead. Um, and just like looking at my phone now, there, there are texts after that. Um, I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. <laughs> I, I don't completely know why, but I guess there's a side that didn't kind of want to believe it. You know how I say that, you know, you text friends in Gaza, it's kind of texting them just to see if they respond, just to see if they are alive. And I, I texted them again after I was told so I'm kind of like just just in case he answers. What did you text? It says, "Are you here? This feels so strange to send and ask." Um, but that was never received. It's still unread. Do you know what happened to him? How he was killed? He was uh, in a house of relatives with his family, um, two daughters two of his siblings, his mother, uh, him and his wife, were all killed in the bombing and a few other cousins. I'm sure listeners will want to know, so I just want to give you the opportunity to, to clarify that Khalid was not uh, a member of the Hamas or involved or supportive of the Hamas. Khalid was not. And it feels almost ridiculous to have to say it. Like, this is a person who's like literally talked about nonviolence and the importance of nonviolence his entire life, including criticism within Gaza about it, you know? That doesn't keep him, save him. And forget even about Khalil, like about his two daughters. Like how many of us ask this question of like, um, I think that maybe people are saying like, so who who in his family was, was a terrorist, right? Because like in our minds, it's the houses of terrorists that are being bombed. Um, and I, 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 I'm, I'm not a military person. I don't know what the, but it's like entire apartment buildings, you know, entire neighborhoods. So I don't know. Maybe one of his neighbors was a target. Maybe like, I don't know who the target was there. All I know is that him and everyone he loved is dead. We know that the majority of people killed, including the Israeli military, will tell you that the majority of people being killed are not Hamas operatives. It's just easier for us in our minds to say, no, no, they're all Hamas affiliated. I just want to push you on that because, look, a lot of civilians in Gaza are being killed, and that's a horrible, horrible thing. But it is also because the Hamas are cynical and are using them as human shields and are putting their commanders and their command centers underneath hospitals. So, I mean, what what is Israel supposed to do? Like the civilians of Gaza should be rising up against the Hamas. I think people in Gaza who have been living in this fear for a very long time, and fear not only from Israel, fear from Hamas, very clearly. The, the ideas of what you can do, of how much agency you have in this, are extremely limited. And I think most of us would probably act the same. Like most of us wouldn't 
know what to do. What, how, do you, how do you overthrow a government? How do you overthrow a government in the middle of a war? When bombs are literally falling around you, everyone I've spoken to in Gaza over the last few weeks, the only thing that they are thinking about is where do I move my family right now that's the safest? Nothing else matters. Nothing else exists. So thinking that now someone will say, you brought this on the on us, I'm going to try to overthrow you. Like, who's capable of that? And... There's a demand from us always. If, if you want peace, give me a solution. And we don't even have that same demand from the military right now. But like military personnel will tell you, we don't have a solution. Clearly, we're going to bomb the hell out of Gaza. We're going to go in, try to, I don't know, crush Hamas. And every expert on security will tell you, what does that mean? They themselves say, we don't know what that means. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know what the day after looks like. Even if we manage to completely annihilate Hamas, which no military personnel thinks is possible. Even if we manage to do that, we know that what's going to happen after that is a vacuum that no one will fill. It's like what we are currently offering is not only killing thousands of civilians. It also literally has no horizon. The only situations in the history of this country where the security of Israelis has actually increased have been peace accords. We know that is what the solution is. We know it's the only solution. We know that every military solution that was ever tried is going to fail. And, and I get people want to know right now, right now what I want to do. So my thing is right now don't kill people. Just don't kill them. As simple as that. And then let's talk about what, yes. Mishi, thank you so much again for bringing us these postcards from your wartime diaries series. And as we said in the beginning, I so wish that our collaboration will be in peacetime as well. Amen, Amanda. In a month from now, let's, uh, let's have a joint episode about something completely different. Sunshine and roses all the way. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom.